I knew I was in a bad way because I couldn't feel from my waist downwards, I was paralyzed. There was blood. My arm, my right arm, which felt like it was sticking out, was draped over my head and there was blood tricking down into my eyes. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. If anything happened to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no to run boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Chances of survival were very, very slick. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the plane burst Proud of the plane. crew. Proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. To volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. In October 2017, we spoke with Todd Vale, currently serving in the Australian Army. Todd has served in the Middle East and with the 1st Commando Regiment. He has also served as aide-de-camp to the Governor of New South Wales, Rear Admiral Peter Sinclair. Todd shared his story with Angus Horton, as well as the tale of his grandfather's incredible action in World War II. I'm Angus Horden, and today I'm speaking with an old schoolmate, Todd Vale. Thanks very much, Angus. Todd, let's firstly start with your grandfather. Please tell us his story. Uh, my grandfather was Charles Ian McLean. He lived in Rabaul, New Guinea. He was the dentist before the Second World War. His father, Hector Ian Roderick McLean, was a plantation owner. Uh, he married my grandmother uh, and they were living in Rabaul. And my mother was born in 1941. Four months later, she was compulsory evacuated along with her two brothers, Ian and Roderick, and my grandmother uh, before the Japanese invasion. Now, interestingly, the government of Australia at the time only evacuated women and children. All the uh, male civilians were left in rebel, including my great-grandfather. My grandfather was in the New Guinea Volunteer Rifles and he formed part of Lark Force, which the nucleus was the 2nd 22nd Battalion, which arrived in Rabaul in force in March and April 1941. They were supported by uh, the 23rd Squadron, which had four Wirraways and some Boston bombers, plus some coastal artillery, plus uh, anti-aircraft gunners and anti-tank gunners. And the whole 1,400 homogenous mob was nicknamed Lark Force. Um, and you might recall there was Gold Force, uh, another battalion sitting on in Timor, and Sparrow Force somewhere else. I can't, uh, can't quite recall. But uh, these soldiers uh, and nurses were, uh, were pretty well subject to a Japanese invasion of 500 troops who arrived on the evening of the 23rd of January 1942. They arrived at uh, 2 a.m. in the morning. Um, there was a, a fierce struggle. I think the Japanese lost approximately 16 killed. And uh, Colonel Scanlon, the commander of Lark Force, gave the famous words, every man for himself. And uh, the whole force had to abandon their positions, retreat back through the jungles um, of New Britain. 400 managed to get away. Um, 160 were uh, massacred uh, during the Toll Plantation massacre, and about 300 escaped uh, of the force to Australia. The rest who were rounded up were taken back to Rabaul. They were interned with the civilians who were also rounded up. Uh, my grandfather, who was in charge of a Vickers machine gun detachment down on the beach on the night of the invasion, apparently escaped uh, with his troops, but turned back several days later knowing full well that the Japanese would have uh, interned his father and he knew his father would not survive captivity without him. So he handed himself into the Japanese, was interned in the internment camp, and in July, or sorry, it was the 22nd of June 1942, all the prisoners uh, were put on board the Montevideo Maru, which was an unmarked auxiliary Japanese transport ship. They subsequently headed towards Japan, uh, and on the evening of the 30th of June, they're the, they in the South China Sea, off the coast of uh, Luzon, and they were being tracked by Lieutenant Commander William Wright, who was the CO of the USS Sturgeon. He'd been tracking them for four hours, 
And on the 1st of July at 2.29 a.m., he fired four torpedoes. Uh, these hit uh, the Montevideo Maroon, uh, and she sank in four minutes, uh, stern first. Uh, no Australians survived. 11 Japanese survived and rode themselves onto Luzon, where they escaped uh, Philippine guerrillas, and a handful survived the war. Um, one of the survivors said he heard the men singing Old Dang Zine as the, as the ship sank. So that was uh, 75 years ago this year. And we held a ceremony at the War Memorial where there is a, uh, a monument and there's a great address delivered by uh, Brendan Nelson. Todd, I um, have seen you on Anzac Day many times and you and your family, to their credit, wife and children have joined you and have really been the sole representation in later years of Lark Force. And, and look, I, I feel that Lark Force is just another one of these incredible stories that we just don't know enough about. You know, the facts that the Japanese were throwing crack troops, you know, early in the morning against, you call them that motley group, but, you know, it was an association. It would probably be not dissimilar to local militia and things. They weren't our best troops, unfortunately. These massacres that were happening was just an indication of the ferocity and barbarism of the Japanese. Can you share a bit more detail on, on that massacre? Certainly several days walk over the, uh, the I think it's the Barrington Mountains, uh, which is, uh, was a nightmare journey when you read the um, conditions which the survivors had to march through. They came down onto the coast where there were copra plantations. In this particular plantation toll, I think it was about four days walk away from the last roads from Rabaul. The Japanese were, uh, were off the coast and encouraging by leaflet drop Australians to surrender. A number of Australians surrendered to the Japanese. They were absolutely exhausted. They'd had no food. They were carrying injuries. And so they surrendered down at the plantation to the Japanese. The Japanese wired their hands behind their back, marched them into the plantation and either bayoneted or shot them. And there were a number of survivors, including one I met on an Anzac day who had uh, suffered greatly through, uh, through bayonet um, injuries and had been left for dead by the, by the Japanese. But it was absolute slaughter of Australian forces. They had no chance and they had surrendered. They had no respect for any prisoner of war. They were not uh, signatories to the Geneva Convention and made no effort to distinguish between um, merchant men and um, ships carrying prisoners of war. Todd, um, growing up with all this, what sort of impact did it have on you? I, uh, I was introduced to the members of the surviving members of Lark Force very early in my um, formative years, just after I'd started at Knox, because uh, I was, used to spend considerable time with my grandmother. And uh, she started to encourage me, particularly when I joined cadets, to go in and help the survivors at, uh, at Sydney uh, in the march. I used to go in, in in my cadet uniform and carry the Lark Force banner, which I did for a number of years, even well into my military years. And I still, in fact, uh, when I was serving as the governor's aide-de-com, I used to march at the head of the Anzac column just behind the governor, and we would get picked up by the Rolls-Royce and the police escort, and then they would drop me back <laughs> so I could march again with, uh, with Lark Force. So I did that uh, right up until the end, until um, there were no survivors left in Sydney. And I, we still carried the banner and I still encouraged uh, family descendants to march with us. And we did that until the RSL changed the rules where descendants had to march as a homogenous group. And uh, I hung the banner up after that and, uh, and haven't, uh, haven't marched. Do any memories of school's cadet corps really stand out to you? Oh, there are numerous memories. Again, the formative years where we got up to a, a lot of mischievous things and it certainly, um, I could not wait to join cadets. Uh, and there were some great identities there with a lot of uh, military experience who helped shape us as we grew up. So Todd, leaving cadets, you know, what uh, inspires you to ultimately join the army? Look, I was always inspired and always going to join the army from about knee high. I think my art, uh, is probably guilty of getting me uh, interested in the military by when she gave me her lead soldier and tank collection when I was about three or four years old. 
And I used to, I had a fascination of all things military uh, from that day. Can you tell us when you get into the army, what is your sort of first steps and, and where you go? In year 11, I had my first opportunity to apply for scholarship entry to Duntroon. Uh, and that was my first undoing and my first attempt to join uh, the army. Um, I went along to the recruiting centre and I had to sit through a battery of uh, physical aptitude and psychological tests. And I'd had no guidance on the psychological test and I didn't do well. In fact, I did so poorly on the psychological test, they invited me not to reapply for officer entry uh, for another two years. Uh, And it was simply the type of questions such as when you've been on top of a tall building, have you thought of jumping off? To which I replied, no. Correct answer is question mark or yes. Uh, So there are three or four hundred questions similar in nature to that, which form a pattern. And obviously, um, I was trying to answer the questions I thought they would like to hear as opposed to the the actual question. So um, I was fairly devastated that I had, um, uh, I was banned from joining the Australian Regular Army for two years. I was still determined to join the army. I finished the HSC. Um, I went home for Christmas in Bangladesh. We happened to know the British military attaché, who was a naval officer. He arranged for me to sit the Sandhurst entry exams, uh, which I passed with flying colours. The British Army didn't have a psychological (laughs) testing profile, and I'm not sure that they still do, but um, I passed with flying colours and received my letter of offer to joined the British Army on uh, October 1982, uh, where I was going to go through the 22-week short commissioning course at Sandhurst. I finished my holiday break. I came back to Australia. I was living with my grandparents down at Newport. My grandfather-in-law encouraged me to get a job, which I needed. He was an uh, ex-Bank of New South Wales employee. He arranged for me to do the interview. I got in. I became a bank clerk down at Newport Beach Branch, so I had my first job. It was there I saw ads on the TV for Australian Army Reserve Officer Entry. Um, I decided to go and give that a go. Um, I was 40 minutes late, caught in traffic one Saturday morning. I went down to Fort Street for my interviews. I did exactly the same psych test I did for Duntroon uh, and exactly the same testing process. Um, I must say I was very relaxed and uh, really didn't care because I already had my offer uh, to the British Army. But I passed, and um, I ended up out at um, Bardia Barracks in 38 course, uh, Office Cadet Training Unit. There were 60 of us on the course. I was the youngest at 18, and I was with a great group of people. So I started my military training, officer training, and uh, it was every second weekend, two 16-day periods a year. And uh, over the next 18 months, I actually completed my um, army training um, and was commissioned as a second lieutenant. In July uh, 2000, uh, sorry, 1984, I'd given the British Army away because I was enjoying my training so much. It was satisfying my military need. I was in the Australian Army as opposed to the British Army. Um, In my first year as an officer cadet, I met my wife, Anne-Marie, who was 17. She was the sister of uh, one of the girls I worked with down at Newport. And we've been happily married 30 years this year. So I'd met her, I'd bought my first car and I had my first job and I was with the Army. And I thought if I can uh, go to commandos uh, when I get commissioned, I would be very happy and I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't need to go back and take up the deferral for the British Army. Following commissioning, they gave me three choices as to uh, which corps and which unit I wanted to go to. On the form, I filled out one commando company, one commando company, one commando company. Well done. And ordinarily, um, the commandos will not accept you. You have to do 12 months in an infantry unit to gain experience, do your regimental officer's basic course. Well, they posted me to one commando without any of that, and I arrived as a brand spanking new second lieutenant. You would pull up at the uh, George's Heights where the commandos were and that's when we bumped into each other again because I was a rifleman in the ranks whilst you were the brand new commanding officer. And uh, it's interesting because by coincidence, I actually drove through the main gates yesterday. I had to drop my son off down at Chowder Bay. So we drove past George's Heights and I said to him, look on the corner here at George's Heights, there is a caribou 
And I can still remember, I mean, as we used to do on those Tuesday nights with those route marches and runs, I remember you yelling out something, you know, words to the effect, you know, last man to the caribou isn't getting out of here tonight sort of thing. And we all broke ranks and sprinted down, uh, what is it, Middlehead Road or whatever it is. And, and I can still remember you yelling over everybody um, that that order and, and, and us running there. The caribou's sadly gone, as you, as you would know. This is on the road down to Penguin. The whole depot is sadly gone. Well, that's my point, that when I went there yesterday, all that remains of the depot are the two brick pillars of the front gate. And you drive in where we used to have that wonderful parade ground that we used to stand erect for hours whilst you guys used to strut around inspecting and going and doing stuff. Now there's bushes and a car park and um, I mean, they've, they've actually converted back into beautiful space, but our old base is gone. Let's talk about the commando regiment. I mean, the commando regiment today is far more active than the commando regiment when we were there. Um, commandos, are being posted, you know, to war zones as we speak. But at the time, it was still the reserve unit for the SAS. It was still very serious. Can you talk about, you know, your role in the commando regiment and the activities that we were doing at that time? Well, the commandos, the regular army didn't have commandos back in the 80s. Our Carter staff were all drawn from the Special Air Service Regiment. Our OC at the time, I know when you joined, was uh, Marty Hamilton-Smith, who's these days a famous uh, South Australian politician, and he drove a Porsche and all the um, officers had sports cars, hence why I had a TR7. Uh, but yes, the army of, in those days really couldn't afford a full-time commando force. Special Air Service Regiment, uh, they specialised in long-range reconnaissance behind enemy lines, so s small, discrete forces. Uh, and they also held the counter-terrorism role. But it was all based in Western Australia. Commandos, on the other hand, were a large raiding force. Company size, normally about 150, with heavy weapons, uh, would be inserted by air or by sea behind enemy lines to attack uh, strategic targets. And so we were an expensive force to, to equip, maintain, and particularly to train, because we used a lot of air hours uh, in maintaining our parachute capability. We used a lot of uh, patrol boat hours, uh, submarine platforms, uh, and we, we maintained a, a small fleet of uh, small craft as well. Army has now seen the benefit of maintaining regular commando forces, and uh, hence 4RAR which was an infantry unit, and now they are the 2nd Commando Regiment. But certainly the commandos uh, from the reserves formed, helped form the nucleus of that unit. And these days there's a lot of cross-pollination between reservists and regulars. And indeed, during our time in Afghanistan, where special forces were active for at least 15 years, the Christmas rotation was done by soldiers and officers from 1st uh, Commando Regiment who were all reservists. It's funny um, talking with you again because it brings back so many memories. But one memory, when I joined uh, the commando regiment, I was allocated a corporal. And you'd remember that corporal. He was South African. He was tall. His name was Mal. Mal McGowan. Yes. And, and he was just, again, a lovely guy. And, and, and the beauty of the regiment was there were a whole bunch of odd bods. I mean, there were absolute cutthroats, drunkards, bastards, everything was there. And then you had a few more highly civilised, educated people. And he certainly was one of those. Um, Lance Corporal McGowan, he drove a Porsche as well, and he was the local dentist up at Mossman. What was interesting, as we both know, and again, he was my corporal, so responsible for my training. And so when I went on exercise, it was always with him. Um, as we both know, he then left commandos, went back and joined the SAS over in Britain and was deployed and then captured. And he was one of the SAS guys captured in the first Gulf War. And I remember you and I talking somewhere, I think a pub or something, and they're showing the heads of these captured SAS and here's one of the guys from our unit. He was one of the team of Bravo 2-0. He's the guy referred to as Dinger. He's survived and uh, has returned to Australia several times to uh, attend various One Commando reunions. But I understand he's still working for 22 SAS in the UK and uh, they've set him up with a uh, dental practice there at uh, Hereford as well. Todd, going back to your story, let's talk about the para training and, and where that takes you. Uh, I was qualified in uh, September 84 after, uh, after successfully completing the officer selection course. In fact, the officer selection course, no one expected me to pass. They thought I'd be too inexperienced and too young. Um, I was there with uh, 22 
other officers uh, up to the rank of captain who were very experienced infantry officers. And we were put through a selection course, which was very grueling. Uh, it was just a, a mini SAS selection course, uh, and only two people passed it, myself and uh, for uh, one commando in Sydney. And I think it was Doug Knight who uh, was successful for two commando in Melbourne. So that, uh, that gave me my Green Beret and my qualification. I then had to, within a number of months, go away and do my parachute qualification course, which I did in uh, September of 84. And that was uh, shortly followed by the small craft handlers course back in uh, July 85. I remember very early on, one of our weekends away with the reserves is that we turned up on Friday night at George's Heights. We all bundled into the back of those trucks and we didn't know where we were going. Of course, they would delight not telling us where we're going. And um, before we knew it, we're at Mascot, we're walking through the terminal, we're walking up the rank of a Hercules. Suddenly it takes off, we're going to Dubbo that weekend, I had no idea. But the alarming thing to me was I wasn't para-qualified and halfway through, uh, they dropped the bloody door and half the guys pile out. And it was probably you amongst them as well. I certainly wasn't para-qualified. So I was, you know, I, I was with the other half that stayed in and the guys looked at us and I, um, I had concerns about the look they gave us. But um, to your point that they took it very seriously and these guys, yourself included, were just diving out into the dark of the night and the grace of God that, you know, more weren't killed. But Tell us what happened to you. Well, I would have been one of those people because we regularly did our parachuting uh, up at Dubbo or Parks, primarily because the, the drop zones on the eastern seaboard were invariably blown out with high winds. So we'd turn inland and we'd have alternate drop zones out there which we could use. I never really liked parachuting. I was uh, one of these terrified people. Um, oh, mate, you're just being honest, gee. It, uh, Military parachuting is not much fun. You're jumping with all your equipment. Uh, you're probably weighed down with uh, 30 to 40 kilos worth mm. of equipment, including your, your pack, your webbing, your weapon. Uh, you're jumping from low altitudes between nine and 1100 feet. Um, you hit the ground uh, in 54 seconds from that height. Uh, and, and that's how it's designed to get you down before uh, you can take effective enemy fire. Uh, so you're coming out of the aircraft rapidly remember you, you're trying to get a hundred people out the door or out the side doors of the hercules aircraft mm. um, a second apart there's risk of being tangled up with other parachutists around you there's all sorts of various risks mid-air risks and your parachute not opening is always a great fear and whether you can grab your reserve handle and deploy your reserve chute in time and also a lot of our parachuting uh, was done at night obviously commandos uh, like to maintain stealth and um we would uh, invariably train at night. So some remote paddock somewhere in, uh, in Australia with barbed wire fences, the odd tree and winds, um, hopefully under 17 knots when you, uh, when you left the aircraft. Very hard to see the ground because you also looked for a, um, a moonless night. So it was pitch black when you exited the aircraft. Very hard to make out uh, the ground. But invariably, my best jumps were at night because I adopted the right position. You had to look at the horizon to sort of gauge where you were in the, in the sky. But you'd be all hunched up uh, with your knees bent, your elbows tucked in, and you'd hit the ground and roll. Uh, whereas by daytime, all my parachute jumps... My landings were heels, helmet, heels, helmet. <laughs> I'd invariably lie on the ground if I wasn't being dragged off by the wind with seeing stars literally uh, from striking the back of my helmet after you know, landing on my, uh, on my heels. Todd, tell us about the one jump too many. The one jump too many, I just completed the um, command raiders course. Um, we were having our first weekend. I'd been appointed as the raid commander. We were doing a jump in, uh, this is October 88, and uh, we were doing a, uh, an exercise down in the mountains behind Nara. We had uh, decided to use the drop zone safety team from the, the newly established parachute training school, which had been moved from Williamstown down to HMAS Albatross to save our own people traveling down there on Friday night. And we had a, an American exchange navigator on the C-130. The drop zone safety team had assumed we'd be flying from Richmond down to Nowra. So we'd be approaching from the, from the north, uh, which is the way the aircraft normally approach, but we were on exercise. So we, we tactically flew the aircraft down through the mountains 
behind Nowra and then pretty well at treetop level, um, hugging the ground as, as we used to, and then we popped up to 800 feet. The OC at the time was a bloke called Major Greg Smith, and he said we wouldn't, would dispense with the, the streamer drop over the drop zone, uh, which is um, something we always do. That is, you would approach the drop zone and you would overfly the drop zone and throw a streamer out to make sure that the navigator and the X lined up and the winds weren't mm. going to blow you off course. Well, Greg Smith decided to dispense with that and uh, we approached from the wrong direction. Uh, there was no wind. It was early in the morning. I was number six out the door and uh, when I came out, the drop zone would have been half a kilometre away from where we were. In other words, we were, we were parachuting onto the airfield or the grass verges of the airfield at HMS Albatross. Where we jumped, uh, we jumped into very heavy broken timber. I had uh, I was on a steerable parachute uh, called an MC1, uh, which gave me about 15 knots of drive, and I was driving towards the drop zone, but there was no way I was going to make it. Because I was the raid commander, I was weighed down with a M16 rifle, the radio, spare batteries, rations, and ammunition, and I was being pulled down rapidly by my equipment. I decided not to drop it early because I had the radio and the, and the rifle and I didn't want to lose them in thick bush. I hit the top of the gum trees, uh, at which point that's the point you release your equipment. My quick release strap had uh, slipped around under my ammunition pouches and I couldn't, uh, couldn't get to it. Um, so I was committed to landing with all my equipment. I crashed through the canopies of the very, very tall gum trees, thought I was through, and then landed very hard against a tree stump, breaking my lower back and uh, smashing my right arm and rupturing some, some organs. I knew I was in a bad way because I couldn't feel from my waist downwards, I was paralyzed. There was blood. My arm, my right arm, which felt like it was sticking out, was draped over my head and there was blood tricking down into my eyes. So <clears throat> that was my very last parachute jump. That was my 99th jump. Um, I heard the our company sergeant major crashing through the bush around me trying to find me. I think six of us had landed in heavy out of the stick of 10 which were jumping. Six of us had missed the boundary fence and were, had come down in this very heavy timbered area. I was the only one seriously hurt. The ambulance came to the fence. They got the stretcher over the three metre barbed wire fence. They got a medic over. They found me. Um, they gave me some gas I think. They put me on a, a one, onto an alpine stretcher with a lot of pain because my arm was splintered and they somehow manhandled me back over the boundary fence to the waiting um, RAF or naval ambulance. And I was very fortunate at the time because in those days they were still flying jets, uh, the A-10s out of HMS Albatross, and they had full surgical capability in the hospital on base. So they took me, they the ambulance driver, this is a real accident for him. So he drove flat out, which was absolutely excruciating for me because my bone ends <laughs> and nerve ends were sort of driven against each other as he as he, as he applied the brakes or went round the, the corner. Yeah, so it was a, every an agonizing trip for me. Um, I went straight into surgery and um, they had my parents down there within three hours. Uh, and my one of my best mates, Peter Little. So it was very, very serious. I was in intensive care for about seven days. Sorry, they had my wife there yes. at the same time as my parents, and she, we'd only been married 12 months. She knew I'd go away on these weekends, weekend after weekend, but she never really appreciated how dangerous it, it actually could be. So she stayed with me. Um, she was living in the mess for seven days, and she... Uh, when I stabilised, they were going to transfer me back to the military hospital at Liverpool, out at Ingleburn, 2HSB uh, in those days. And she wouldn't have a bar of it because we lived at Neutral Bay near the commando depot. And she said I'd been injured on naval ground. I'd been hospitalised in a mm. naval hospital. Therefore, I should be close to home at HMAS Penguin. Yeah. They, they had this violent agreement and um, I ended up being transferred by ambulance to HMAS Penguin. And I was there for months in recovery and I had to learn how to walk again. And I had my arm in a sling for about eight months and I wore a back brace for about 18 months and I had a very uh, a very slow recovery but I uh, the doctors did warn me do not parachute again <laughs> because any uh, you know any large impact on on your back you know you could could end up totally paralyzed 
But fortunately, I did get my feeling back and um, they had to teach me how to walk, which I found bizarre, you know, learning how to walk again <laughs> as, a, as an adult, uh, how to push one foot forward. And uh, yeah, that was, uh, was a, an agonising time in my, in my life. But um, I'm, uh, I'm classified um, fit. Uh, in the army to do to do everything. Um, during that time, I had been I'd left the bank and I, ha- I was employed uh, in a private company. I'd actually I lost the job because I'd I'd been away for so long. Um, so when I did recover, I went uh, I went back into the army on full time service as the adjutant at Second uh, Seventeenth Battalion. Uh, and it was from there my commanding officer Andrew Morrison encouraged me to apply for the job as the aide-de-com to the newly appointed governor of New South Wales, who was Rear Admiral Peter Sinclair. His, his appointment came about by the um, death of uh, Sir David Martin. Peter Sinclair came on the scene, and um, as was the tradition of the governors, they got to select their own staff and to start afresh. Uh, so it was Army's turn to supply a, um, an aide-de-com, and my commanding officer thought I'd be a great candidate. So I went along and we had a very personal interview with uh, him and Shirley, his wife. We got along like a house on fire and um, I got the job. So that was early in 19, in March 1993. Actually, I, I remember that, visiting you in Government House. I mean, it's amazing to hear, I knew you were injured, I didn't know the extent of your injuries. I mean, I know you haven't been one to talk about it openly, but certainly, you know, for your war to be over, but to stay in the services and then moving role to this most senior position now. I remember you working with Sinclair. What, what an entirely adaptable position you now find yourself in. And, uh, you know, tell us about some of those roles because um, they were very different to jumping out of aeroplanes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was a ceremonial role through and through. A seven-day-a-week, most weeknight activity. I could certainly involve Anne-Marie in most of after-hour activities and the weekend activities. We had some wonderful experiences, but primarily the job was organising receptions, dinners, country visits. I would write the the program for all the governor's external visits. I would liaise with the organisations on matters of protocol. Um, I'd assist with speech writing. I'd do uh, research on various topics. It was a very active job. And I'd accompany the governor on all his official visits wherever he went. So I'd liaise with the local police, the local councils, parliament, the state members of parliament who would normally host our visits to their regions. Um, I would be the timekeeper who would uh, keep the governor running on time. Uh, and I'd be uh, forever briefing him in the car as to the next venue we were attending and the uh, the people we were about to meet and just revising key points. At uh, functions at Government House, well, we, we were there as the reception committee at the front door to meet the official guests, presenting those guests to the governor and then making small talk and making people feel welcome at Government House. Invariably, uh, it was down to me to do the official tours uh, of Government House, which uh, a lot of the schools would come on a regular basis uh, and I'd take the school kids for tours. Uh, But yeah, a very, very interesting job, but very intense. So you spent a couple of years as the governor's aide, and then you have the opportunity to go abroad. Well, Amory and I decided two years in that job, which was an army job, was enough. Uh, two years back then was a was a standard uh, military posting, and the Sinclairs were more than happy for me to stay, but we wanted to get on with our lives. Particularly, we wanted to travel before having children. So we both handed our notice in, packed up our unit at Neutral Bay and uh, set sail with one-way tickets to England. Um, and when we got there, we'd ha- we had friends who we went and stayed with. We bought a car, we packed it full of camping equipment and we set off around Europe. And uh, when we ran out of money, we came back and uh, we both sought and got uh, work in London. Once we had settled down and we had a flat, I went into the Australian High Commission for my secondment interview. I arranged a secondment to serve with the British Territorial Army, the Royal Green Jackets. I was in there and I met uh, Colonel Don Tate, who's the Army advisor in London, who'd also been a brigade commander of mine at 5th Brigade. We knew each other well and he asked me what I was doing and I said I was looking for full-time work in London and he said, come with me, Todd. <laughs> and I 
He gave me uh, he gave me the job as the overseas training officer in London. So my job was equivalent to a, an army captain's job, and I had to uh, liaise with the British. Ministry of Defence and other civilian organisations like Cranfield University who provide a test pilot course and I'd negotiate the training of Australian defence personnel and civilians uh, in the UK. Todd, can we, I mean there's so much to talk about but I would like to sort of move towards how you get back into the army and you actually get back into war. I think, you know, that's uh, for a guy who's literally almost been military discharged because of your injury. Tell us how you were, uh, you come back and you actually retransform yourself in the, in the military and how that takes you overseas ultimately. I have a less than 10% disability with my injury, so I'm fit for military service. So therefore, just not I parachuting. Just, just not. Well, I can parachute, but the advice is not to. So I take doctors' advice very seriously. But I can do everything. When we went to Europe, I was fully fit, according to the army, and I, I served as an infantry company command or second in command of a company um, with no restriction. So I've had no medical restriction. We came back to Australia at Christmas '95, uh, primarily because Anne Marie was pregnant. We knew we could not have a great lifestyle, and we didn't uh, with only one income which would have been mine. Anne-Marie at the time was earning more money than I was uh, in her legal job. Uh, so to drop back onto my income wouldn't have given us the kind of lifestyle we had enjoyed as without children. And I must say the weather in England and London is not comparable to Australia. And if you can bring up children in Australia, that is where you want to bring them up. Certainly not in the depths of winter and misery in England as we saw a lot of our friends struggling to bring up their children indoors uh, in England, and we didn't want that for our kids. Fortune smiled upon us, uh, and we made the decision to return to Australia, and we came home via the US. For Christmas 95, Peter Sinclair got wind that I was returning to Australia. He immediately rang me and offered me a job back at Government House which I immediately turned down because I didn't want to be returning to a uniform position. Uh, he understood that and offered me a job as a speechwriter, which I also initially rejected because I had, I had never written speeches at that level before. Uh, he convinced me that I would have no trouble writing speeches for him, so I accepted the job. So I had a job when we returned to Australia. And as it turned out, it was a wonderful job because they set me up uh, at home with a computer. I could work from home, from Government House, from Parliament House or the State Library. I had total flexibility. I would pop in to see him two or three times a week. We'd discuss uh, various themes for speeches. Uh, then I'd go away, do my research and uh, prepare the speeches. Um, only problem being a speechwriter, of course, is that you're invisible to everyone and nobody ever admits they have a speechwriter. So I had, I had a very interesting 12 months. That was an interesting time for the state government. Uh, Bob Carr was the, the premier. He's a, obviously an a out-and-out uh, Republican and didn't um, really appreciate having a governor um, looking over his shoulder. Uh, and I think they had uh, there were some, uh, some personal disputes between both men, to the point that Peter Sinclair, I think, uh, had done a couple of extensions and uh, was not going to be extended for another term. Um, I had an interesting phone call late in the evening from Bob Carr to say that there was a there was a problem. He didn't have the staff to start the new governor and I was offered the job uh, as the executive officer to the governor if I could uh, you know, spend time with him and get the, get the whole government office business up and running with, with a new governor. I accepted the job. Um, I went out to meet um, Gordon Samuels and his wife. It turns out Gordon Samuels was an ex-British Army artillery officer. We spoke the same language, we got on well, I accepted the job and I became the executive officer and was his executive officer until he retired from the position back in uh, 2001. From there, um, I, uh, I took a redundancy package and I pretty well walked straight in back into the army. Um, I'd been offered a job by Rowan Tink, who's the Chief of Staff of Headquarters Special Operations to go back to Special Forces. Uh, Richard Campbell had been the Special Operations Training Officer and he was deploying to Afghanistan. Uh, so I stepped into his job uh, for a period of 12 months. Following that, I went across to a headquarters Australian theatre down at Cuttable, 
where I looked after uh, international exercises. Then I was loaned to Land Command at Victoria Barracks in Sydney to plan um, Operation Scrummage. I went from there to executing that from the operations branch. And shortly after that, I decided to join the regular army. I had no choice to transfer at my current rank, which was then Lieutenant Colonel. They made me reduce in rank to major, which I accepted, and I served uh, as uh, an operations officer at Land Command as a, as a major during 2004. At the end of 2004, I was promoted back to Lieutenant Colonel. So I served in a number of staff positions before going to uh, on operations uh, into Iraq in 2008 on Operation Catalyst. I went across there in, uh, in April. Um, I was based in Baghdad. My position was uh, the G1, so I was in charge of personnel in the Middle East area of operations, which encompassed uh, at that stage Afghanistan. All our forces in Iraq, we had a, a major armoured battle group down in Basra, and we had uh, air bases in Dubai, Qatar, and other forces in the Middle East, totaling about 5,500 soldiers, airmen and, and naval personnel. As the G1, I was required to travel extensively. Um, I would go down to our uh, air base at our Minhad in Dubai, and I would uh, fly with the P3 Orions on surveillance missions to get a feel for what they were involved in, so I could better help their, uh, their needs back from our headquarters in, in Baghdad. We had an interesting incident on one of those flights where we were challenged by Iranian airspace who were asking us to turn away from their airspace. We were flying along the border looking for arms smugglers or drug smugglers and they were scrambling aircraft to force us to turn. And I must say I was very, very impressed with the Air Force pilots who were as cool as cucumbers and just kept up a banter with Iranian air control and refused to deviate uh, in their mission. Uh, whereas I was looking out over there, <laughs> looking out at the airspace around us, expecting to see uh, fighter jets appear in, in the skies around us. But uh, yeah, very exciting times. I also visited our um, base in Qatar where we had our C-130 transport aircraft had extensive dealings with our base in Kuwait as well, where we did our RSO&I, which was uh, reception, uh, staging and onward integration. So Todd, you're able to get back home from Baghdad unscathed, thankfully. Can you talk about what happens next, getting home, and then you're going to be called away again? It was a couple of years before I, uh, before I went away again. I came back to Australia and did uh, a couple of more staff jobs. And then I was um, deployed to Operation Slipper in Afghanistan, where I served as the Deputy Director of the NATO Advisors Assessment Branch. Uh, it was probably one of the best jobs I've ever had. Um, I wasn't under Australian command, I was under NATO command. My direct commander was a French colonel. I was his deputy. We had a small team of multinational officers and our job was to train the training advisor teams which came into Afghanistan from 52 contributing nations uh, to make sure that they um, knew how to train Afghan army and police units, knew the cultural sensitivities uh, and all the tricks of the trade. Uh, we would then introduce them to um, their Afghan counterparts uh, and then do an assessment six weeks later on their training ability. This job saw me travel widely um, across Afghanistan uh, in all manner of uh, aircraft and vehicles with all manner of different nationalities, French, Belgium, Dutch, English, US, Germans, Italians, Spanish, Czech Republic, Bulgarians, you name it, they were over there training Afghan forces. So we had to integrate with all of them and uh, train their teams and, and assess their performance. Todd, I remember you sharing how there was one particular incident when you had to go through town. I, I recall you're in a Land Rover, you may have been driving or in the front seat, and suddenly that traffic converged on you and you were stuck. That was an everyday occurrence in Kabul. <laughs> stuck, stuck with our armoured vehicles in the middle of Kabul city traffic with people surrounding you with, uh, with guns. But I think the incident you're referring to is um, 
We used to send uh, some of our people to Europe, back to NATO training schools to advise on uh, some of the issues uh, associated with training Afghan forces. And to do that, we'd send them out through Kabul International Airport. So we would have to uh, make arrangements to put them into civilian clothes, drive them to the airport, drop them off, take all their weapons from them, uh, and then leave them to it. The tricky bit was uh, their reception on their return. They'd have to fly into Kabul, they'd be dressed in civilian clothes, they'd come through customs, they'd spew out of the airport and they'd be on their own. We'd get frantic phone calls if their plane was uh, early to come and pick them up because they were vulnerable, vulnerable to kidnap or uh, anything which you know, could have happened. I had uh, one of my American officers fly in early and we got mobile phone calls to say he had arrived early, could we come and collect him? We were based in uh, Camp Phoenix, uh, which is about seven kilometres away from the airport. So we scrambled into our armoured vehicles, which were armoured Toyota Land Cruisers, not uh, Land Rovers. Uh, and we went, uh, we made our way through the city traffic to the airport. We got there and we were confronted uh, on the outskirts on the major roundabout leading into the terminal building by a group of Afghan policemen dressed in different camouflaged uniform to the normal blue uniforms they were wearing. And they refused to let us pass. Now we had uh, certificates, NATO certificates, which authorised our access pretty well anywhere in Afghanistan. And they were pinned onto our, uh, our windscreens. So I was not driving on this occasion. I had a British MP captain who was driving for me. I had uh, my commander in the back and another officer, and we had another vehicle behind us because we always travelled with, with two vehicles and enough people that should we get into a fight, we could successfully fight our way out. These police were armed with M16s and were quite hostile towards us to the point as I refused to turn around, they started getting quite agitated and aggressive. Then they attacked our vehicles. The soldier on the left-hand side of our vehicle started smashing his muzzle of his weapon into my driver's window. Uh, every time, it was quite hilarious because every time he hit the window, his magazine would drop off, uh, which caused a bit of mirth from us, but it was a very serious situation. The detachment commander who was at my window started smashing my window and cracked the armoured window, which was about an inch thick. So he's hitting it with considerable force. And Todd, are these windows bulletproof? The, these windows are bulletproof. The, wind, the mirrors were not. He smashed the windows. They were kicking the car, hitting the car with their weapons. But he could shoot your tyres and disable you. Yeah, although we had run flats, so we were safe from there. My immediate worry was that they would have a, uh, a policeman with an RPG-7, which is a rocket-propelled mm. grenade, and I didn't know where he was. If they had started firing at us, they would have you know, launched one of these grenades at us and we would have not had the protection. Our windows would sustain five rounds before they shattered. So we're in a fairly precarious position. Um, I was also uh, aware that there was a lot of civilians, there was civilian traffic behind us and a lot of civilians on, on foot around us, but also aware of the danger imposed upon my uh, American officer who was by himself, unarmed, um, ahead of us somewhere. I had to make a decision, so I, into the radio, we called out the Ready Reaction Force, which were Belgium soldiers armed in proper armoured fighting vehicles. We had no option but to reverse at speed and turn around and, and leave the scene. Because I, we, if they had opened fire on us and disabled our vehicles, then we would have been forced to dismount and fight and there would have been uh, civilian casualties. Probably not from us, but from their, their uh, indiscriminate firing. Um, so we reversed at high speed and then ran to our, the NATO base on the other side of Kabul International Airport. The Ready Reaction Force arrived. I went and made an official complaint that because uh, our headquarters knew that we were en route because we, were, we had to ask permission before we drove onto the roads. They knew where we were going, what we were going for. They advised us that the roads were clear, no obstructions, that we should be able to go straight through. So I went to it and reported the incident. Uh, we had to wait an hour and a half before I could. we went out again to pick up our, our officer. By this time, the police detachment had changed. Turns out that they were a special protection force for President Karzai. Uh, they were probably high on drugs, so hence the irrational behaviour, the aggressive behaviour. 
the superior behaviour and uh, and the conflict we had. They had also opened fire on a similar American convoy which tried to go into the airport as well and fired at their back windows they'd driven away. So we were lucky that we they didn't fire on us and certainly lucky they didn't open fire at that close proximity, disable our vehicles and force us to fight. But yeah, very disturbing incident and I think the Australian government made an official complaint to the Afghan government, because they had considerably damaged our vehicles by smashing mirrors and fittings to the vehicles. And, and Todd, it just highlights, I know you say it's just another day in the office there, but that deployment overseas is not without its hazards. And that could have been a terrible situation. The biggest hazard which faced us as advisors was the daily threat of what they called um, green on blue. So friendly forces, Afghan forces, firing on us. You really, uh, you had to be so careful because even Afghans who you knew could have been compromised. The Taliban or the other insurgencies which were at work there would kidnap uh, Afghan officials, families, threaten them with blackmail that they would kill their families if they didn't uh, commit atrocities against Western forces. So even people you trusted, you had to be wary of because of that. But you could see the open hatred of a lot of a lot of people as well. There was you look into people's eyes when you were visiting bases, and you, there would be people who would openly look at you with hate for you being in their country. Todd, I, I remember you sadly saying how you became quite good pals with I mean with a lot of people, but in particular there were some Americans on your base. You shared how you had that American mate who was what similar age, had young kids at home, was about to go home after serving so much time. T tell us his story. A very sad, very sad story. These two advisors, US Lieutenant Colonel and his warrant officer, um, they were both family men. The Lieutenant Colonel was on his second tour, so he'd done two years in Afghanistan. He was 14 days from going home. He worked in the police ministry in an office uh, and, a, uh, and an Afghan colonel who knew he was going home and knew he had two twin daughters who he absolutely was devoted to and looking forward to going home and taking them fishing. This Afghan colonel went in and shot him in the back of the head and then went down the corridor and shot his sergeant major in the head as well. And then he absconded. And I don't know that he's been captured, but the Taliban put it down to a Taliban strike. But this left us with a yeah, terrible feeling of anger and frustration at the time. And you, they you really could, knew the American guy in particular. Yeah, that they, that they could go in and slaughter these two you know, guys who were there to really improve the lot and the professionalism of the Afghan police. It really left a bad taste in our mouths. You know, you're over in Afghanistan. Thankfully, your eight months comes to an end eventually. Although it's a wonderful job, it's a job surely that must take its toll on you and indeed that of your family, that stress that you're under. Uh, it, it does to some extent. I think it, it's probably more stressful on the families. It certainly was in my case. My wife came down with a uh, with a, an illness because I was away, and she she was off work for t for two years as a result of it because she never never knew where I was or what I was doing. And uh, you listen to the radio and the, the news; people are talking to her and, and asking her all the time how I am. But you know, I was fine. There was you know, we were living under constant pressure, of course, and and under constant threat because you never knew who you could trust mm. or, or what was going to happen. Quite, quite clearly. But I was there because I wanted to be there. And, you know, I, as I said, it was one of the best jobs I've ever done in the military. Um, I think we did a power of good over there with uh, the, what we, the people we were training uh, and the development which we um, put in place. Uh, but, yeah, I was, I was in my element doing what I enjoy doing um, with people I enjoyed being with. Uh, but yeah, it was very hard on the on the families. And, and Todd, I think this is such an important point that unless you've served yourself and unless your family have had someone who's served, you don't really know the toll it takes on the loved ones at home. And, you know, you can come home, but the effect that it has on spouses, I'm not taking yours in particular, I'm just saying in general, but on your kids worrying about their dad. And that's why... You know, this nation, indeed all, owes such a debt of gratitude to those that fight abroad and indeed those that support those that fight abroad. So you come home, thank God, you're home safe for your family and friends, your Anne-Marie in particular, and things become a bit more peaceful. 
Tell us about your posting in Australia. I came back to a, um, a posting down in Canberra, which is I didn't particularly want to leave home, but Army sends you where Army needs you. And I was posted down to Joint Operations Command, Executive Officer of the Operations Branch. We made a decision to leave the children and my, my wife in, uh, in Sydney, uh, in our home, primarily because they were at that stage of schooling where they were doing their HSC. Alex, my son, was at, was at Knox. So I, uh, I worked during the week down in Canberra and uh, would come home when I could uh, on the weekends, which was, which was doable. Canberra to Sydney is, is quite doable. I remember when I would go to Canberra, I would visit you and we'd have we'd catch up, which would be great. But I remember you proudly saying how you worked so hard in Canberra so that you could get that Friday afternoon off and I remember you telling me, and I could really feel for you, that how you timed it perfectly. So you literally turned up at the school gate at the time Alex finished on Friday. Finished that, cadets on yeah, Friday, and, yes. And, and, and there was his real dad, you know, in uniform, just checking off service. You're picking him up and you'd have that weekend. And, um, and then on Monday, you're back down there again. Well, Sunday night, my job uh, down at Jock started at uh, six o'clock in the morning to uh, clear the operations reports from the watchkeepers overnight and prepare the ministerial operations report for, the, uh, for release by our headquarters through the chain of command. So um, I would have to leave by three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon to go back down to my flat in Canberra so that I was fresh in the morning, Monday morning, first thing. Yeah, yeah very long, very, very long hours spent down there. But it was, uh, it was intriguing because you're at the forefront of operational matters where the Australian government's involved around the world. Thankfully, the Canberra posting comes to an end. You're back home now. Tell us what you're doing now um, in your current role. Uh, currently, um, I'm just coming to the end of a three-year term with Headquarters 2nd Division, which is Army's Reserve Division. The headquarters is based in uh, Ramwick Barracks, and I've been serving there as the operations officer for the last three years. Been a very interesting job. Um, I got to deploy for Exercise Talisman Sabre this year to Hawaii for four weeks, where I was the Deputy Operations Officer there for a three-star US headquarters, uh, which was intriguing. The 25th Infantry Division ran the exercise in Hawaii, and I was doing the uh, the night shifts as the Acting uh, Operations Officer and handing over to the proper Operations Officer in the morning. But wonderful experience, um, seeing how a really big army operates uh, in a con- temporary environment. Uh, but I'll uh, leave that job at the end of this year, and I'll uh, take up another job with Headquarters Forces Command in Sydney um, early next year. Great. So that's determined now, is it? It is determined, yes. Great. So your family get to keep you here a yes, bit longer. Yes, finally, and, uh, which was a bit of a surprise because now both kids are, are out of school and uh, fairly independent, although still living at home. But I had expected uh, that Army would probably move us away from Sydney, but they're uh, they're keeping us in in Sydney for another couple of years. You're still at Vic Barracks then, or I will be back at Victoria Barracks yeah. from uh, from January. Good on you. Well, Todd, um, I know the story is not over; it's still evolving. But the story you've shared today is really quite amazing. I mean, it's been my privilege to have known you in parts of it. One part we didn't actually share was when I transferred into the Navy. I remember being off the heads. And I think you weren't parachuting, but there was a commando unit or something. And I remember you popping up in some army boat or something. and We saw each other. Well, we, you were there. You were commanding that patrol boat. We were parachuting. We were doing load follow from C-130s. A load follow is you follow your Zodiac craft out the back of the Hercules. It drifts down under a parachute. You jump out in wetsuits following it, and then you swim to it, um, get rid of all the harnesses and the, um, the cardboard, which uh, it, they use for, um, for cushioning the, the landing. And then you get the boat operational, and you were the mothership in the patrol craft. And I remember that one quite distinctly because there was, uh, I remember jumping out the back, off the back ramp of the Hercules after my Zodiac and looking down and... Our officer commanding the first commandos at the time was Major Jeff Kidner, and he was jumping off the back of the patrol boat onto the compressed cardboard, trying to make it sink. And there was a massive shark swimming under the patrol boat around the back of the boat, and he couldn't see it from his angle, but 
I could clearly see it from the air and the guys around me could see this massive shark circling the patrol boat and we were coming down into the water nearby. It was, I remember it like yesterday, that incident. Actually, it, 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 I do recall that now. Um, I do remember when you actually came on board, the patrol boat offered you a cup of tea. It was quite civilised. But I actually remember saying to the guys that had SLRs like we did, you know, just to watch out for sharks. But I didn't actually know there were any sharks because I was at water level, not, you know, from on Up top. Up in the so, sky. Wow. Todd, it's been an amazing story. Um, it's still going. We look forward to hearing more of it. But... I just want to, on behalf of everyone, acknowledge your wonderful service to this nation and thank you for sharing your wonderful story with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Angus, to, to come over and, and share some of our mutual stories. It's a great honour for me to be able to, uh, to relate some of those stories and I think you're doing a wonderful job in capturing these histories. That was Angus Horden's conversation with Todd Vale. To hear more about Peter Sinclair, check out episode 23 for my conversation with the most distinguished naval officer himself. And let us know what you thought of the episode by emailing us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. You can also like us on social media, Life on the Line Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and LOTLPod on Twitter. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.